welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. All right. And we are here. We are talking about Cassandra Clare's The Mortal Instruments, as well as the 2013 film, as well as the 2016 television show, Shadowhunters. But just the first book, thank God. Just the first book. Yeah. There are 12 in total. That is too many, but we'll That's talk too about many. that. <laughs> there's only one movie, which is, the... is something we'll get to. <laughs> yeah. And then there's three seasons of this TV show. So we're actually recording this in anticipation of the final back half of season three, which has been decided will be its last on Freeform. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which is not a positive decision. There's a lot of... <laughs> Outcry, so we're actually looking to tap into the fans of the Mortal Instruments with this episode. Although, I guess it'll depend on how we feel about all of these different texts, won't it? I really want the fans of this to come and explain it to me. <laughs> so please, <laughs> please find us on Twitter at hashtag HKHSPod. I'm just saying that ahead of time because I'm probably going to piss you off slash demonstrate my wild ignorance. Mm-hmm. But we should be careful because apparently Cassandra Clare has a reputation for driving angry people towards people who are unhappy with her work i mean that's true and i read i didn't really read that whole article you sent me joe but i skimmed it and she seems like a force to be reckoned with but also can i just point out that hate downloads are still downloads so you know this is true this is how we get onto the (laughs) itunes new and notable list right by pissing people off We're feeling very proud of ourselves for making that list this week. So thanks to everyone who's been downloading, because that's, I guess, why. We don't really know, actually. It's alchemy how you get on that list. You have no idea. Yes, it's probably somebody wrote something on parchment paper, threw it into a <laughs> fireplace, it showed up in a cup or on a sword or some kind of rune. Who knows? All right, you've know. been reading too much, Cassandra Clare. Um, <laughs> before we dig into that, did you do any homework this week, Joe? I did. As we were beginning to talk about what we are going to do on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's not homework if you do it in class, Joe. If the professor doesn't notice, <laughs> it's like it never happened, right? Uh, story of my life. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to highlight a relatively new text. It's a Canadian book written by a Canadian author named David K. Yeh. Mm. And it is called A Boy at the Edge of the World. Have you heard of this one? No, I'm excited. I have not heard anything about this. Okay. I can't remember how I caught this. It was likely some kind of news report or somebody was flagging it as a new and notable text. I'll just give you the quick summary because I haven't read it. It's on my to-do list. So the back is Meet the Garneau Boys, triplets from small town Ontario. Daniel, the eldest, is gay and moves to Toronto with his best friend Karen to attend university. Eventually, he meets David, a bike mechanic whose Catholic Italian mother talks to her dead husbands. Their chemistry is immediate, but Daniel is still drawn to his ex-boyfriend Marcus, a performance artist whose grandfather was a book-burning Nazi. A Boy at the Edge of the World is a rollicking dramedy that explores the compulsive and ultimately universal human pursuit of intimacy, sex, and love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't feel like that description is really doing the text justice. From what I remember of the person who was advocating for it, they said it was really touching. It's just a really powerful, gripping debut. And it sounded like it had awards potential behind it. So Cool. Well, I'm excited to hear what you think about it once you dig in. Mm-hmm. 
And what about you? Well, <laughs> my homework got me into trouble this week because as we were signing off from our recording last week, I told Joe that I had just picked up Angie Thomas's second book on the come up mm-hmm. and that I was going to read that book before I started The Mortal Instruments. Which I thought was very daring because both of those texts are quite long. Yeah. I had a flight on Monday and Tuesday and I used all that flying and airport time to read on the come up. And as a result, I spent most of last night and the wee hours of this morning cramming mortal instruments and being really resentful about it. Ha! So you didn't do your homework either. Well, the thing is I did the homework homework, but I barely did the show homework. So on the come up, I have not quite finished it because I had to put it down or I was never going to get through mortal instruments. Mm -hmm. But it is Oh, it's fantastic. And if you liked The Hate You Give, don't wait on on the come up. It takes place in the same, geographically the same place. And so there's references to events that happened in The Hate You Give in On the Come Up. But I don't think it matters what order you read it in. It's like they're two sort of separate standalone stories happening in the same community, basically. But it's an Angie Thomas shared universe. Yes, it is. (laughs) And the characters know of and about each other. So this book is the story of Brie. She's a wannabe rapper and she's really, really gifted. Her father before her was a really gifted underground rapper who was kind of just about to hit it big when he gets murdered in the gang violence in the community that we already know about from The Hate You Give. Yeah. And so she barely remembers him. She was a child when this happened. And so as she tries to kind of pursue her career and find her own identity through music. She also finds herself constantly having to battle like the expectations of people because of who her father was. And also just like in The Hate You Give, it's sort of trying to be a normal teenage girl coming of age while simultaneously navigating the violent parts, but also just like the beautiful parts of her community. She's got a difficult relationship with her mother. Her mother had been an addict and has recovered, but the trust has not been fully rebuilt. And much like in The Hate You Give, she goes to a school outside of Garden Heights, but not a private school. It's like a magnet school for the arts that she goes to. And so she also has to kind of constantly watch herself. There's a really interesting through line where... Like, she's not a great student, and she's often kind of lippy with her teachers, but the consequences that she faces for being lippy with her teachers are, like, way higher than the consequences that the white girls in school get for the same kind of thing, because everything she does is sort of read through this lens of her body being aggressive just by its existence. So there's a lot of really interesting things going on around black femininity and, and what white society codes it as. Anyway... I haven't quite finished. I've got like 50 pages left and it was so painful to put them aside (laughs) to do my actual work for the show. I was going to wait till next week when I've actually finished it, but I really want, I just want everybody to go and get it because it's so good. And if you read The Hate You Give recently or you watched the movie recently, you'll just love being back in that world with those voices and with Angie Thomas's fantastic blend of angst and wit. And it's just good. Now, I do have a question, because while you were recounting the premise and Mm -hmm. some of the themes, it sounds very similar to The Hate You Give. Like, I know it's set in the same world, and obviously Mm -hmm. Angie Thomas has a certain wheelhouse that she's very interested in continuing to explore, but how similar is it? I think what makes it very different when you're inside the head of the protagonist, they have very different voices, so you wouldn't mistake Brie for Star or vice versa, because... 
Brie has the added complications of class issues. Her family lives in pretty abject poverty. Okay. And so she has sort of day-to-day survival struggles that aren't really reflected in Star's experience. And also, Brie's a lot angrier than Star. With good reason, she's a lot angrier. Brie is not nearly so like open-hearted as Star, and so her reflections on her community and the world around her are really different. One of the things that points out what a good just craftsperson Angie Thomas is is that you're right like on the surface these two books sound really similar but the protagonists have completely unique voices which is quite remarkable really okay yeah highly recommend I don't know if that's come across it's good did that come across yes I I think it came across strongly and that's just freshly out so people can go and seek it out now yeah I think it came out Tuesday before last so it's still in hardcover but actually this is not a plug for chapters or anything but for our Canadian listeners I was noticing in the mall the other day that it's one of the Heather's picks so it's it's like 20 bucks go pick it up Mm, it's YA so hopefully it's always a little bit cheaper than regular but true true okay well I guess we can't hold off any longer, so we should probably (laughs) talk about... No, I'm actually kidding. I didn't dislike the book. I think it has some issues with it. I hated the film, and the TV show was okay. That's sort of my quick takeaway from the three mortal instrument texts. I will be totally upfront and say that I don't think I read the book particularly attentively. (laughs) It bored me, but then I was only about 150 pages into the book when I watched the movie, And going back to the book was a blessed relief because the book is (laughs) vastly superior to the film. But yeah, there are some pretty significant problems with both of them. So we were thinking that because we're going to try to cover all three at once, we're going to kind of talk about them together. Is that the plan? I think just to make sure that we're giving equal opportunity because we're introducing a third text into the mix. And traditionally, we barely managed to get across two in the time that we have together. So... (laughs) thinking we can do all three and maximize. Does this mean I have to go do the plot? <laughs> well, I'm thinking give a cursory overview okay. just so that people understand like what this is in case they've never heard of this. Okay. And then I'll give a quick rundown of the film and the TV show just in terms of casting and that kind of stuff. Okay, so Cassandra Clare's 2007 novel, City of Bones, it's urban fantasy. It's set in modern-day New York City. Mm-hmm. The protagonist is named Clary. She lives with her mom in kind of an artist's loft in Brooklyn. Her mom is an artist, and she is an aspiring artist. The other sort of, I guess, significant character in terms of the world of normal human folks who we meet at the beginning of the text is her best friend, Simon. Please refer to them as mundane. Oh my god. Mundies. That was even worse when they called Mundies. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So Clarissa believes that she's a normal everyday girl. She's got this best friend named Simon. Shockingly, he's obviously in love with her and she has no idea. Mm -hmm. He has glasses. Oh yeah, he has glasses. And at one point he'll take them off and she'll realize he's much more handsome than she thought. Mm -hmm. It's like the reverse of the ponytail. The boy glasses. There we go. Her mom... Jocelyn is like super overprotective and has this close male friend named Luke who kind of acts as a father figure to Clary, but isn't. Mm -hmm. Because that dad is dead. Yeah. (laughs) All we know about her father is that he's dead. And at the beginning of the text, really, all we know is that I guess he was in the military and he died in a car accident. That's the story we get at the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. We don't need to worry about it too much because it's fake, fake, fake. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it also like... Frustratingly, she doesn't bring it up. Anyway, it's fine, whatever. So her mom (laughs) 
is super protective of her and like announces that because she's been out late with her friends, they're moving to the country for the rest of the summer. And also because they're poor, they're moving to their country house. I was confused by that part, but whatever, it's fine. Anyway, so before that can happen, Clary sort of storms off to go to this poetry reading and it's a really bad poetry reading. By when she comes back to the house, or like, does she get a phone call from her mom? Anyway, something happens and her mom is kidnapped and she doesn't know what's happening. And when she goes to seek solace with Luke, he tells her he's not going to look after her. Right. But you also skipped over the part where she and Simon go to a club and she witnesses a person getting murdered, but nobody else can see them. Right. She can see these people that nobody else can see. Yes, that's important. And those people are demons and or demon hunters. Mm-hmm. And so in the aftermath of her mother disappearing, one of those demon hunters, Jace, I guess comes to her rescue and they go through a teleportation portal and they end up in Luke's house where they find out that some evil guy has come back and he was after Clary's mother. And Mm -hmm. through this, we find out that Clary's mother is also a demon hunter who had broken with the demon hunters and had tried to shield her daughter from that life. And it turns out that the evil guy who has come back, his name is Valentine, and he is actually Jocelyn, Clary's mother's ex-husband, and the father of Clary. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much else to do. I think that's fine for now. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the the biggest problem is that the book is chock-a-block full of plot, and a bunch of it feels like it's not important, but it's taking up a lot of space and capacity. Like, I haven't even mentioned that there are also vampires and werewolves in this book, mm-hmm. and the werewolves connect back because of Luke, but the vampires, I don't know why the vampires are in this book at all. I can tell you, but it's a spoiler for book two. Oh. Have you read book two? I read the description just to see how closely it tracks to the TV show. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, so, okay. But as far as the context of book one is, there's a whole scene where... Not even a scene, like a big freaking chapter. Oh, yeah, so like a whole chapter thing. Like, it's it's an entire chapter on its own where when they're at this club, Simon drinks this potion and he gets turned into a rat and the rat gets kidnapped by these vampires for reasons and they have to like break into the vampire's place and get him back and the whole time i was like what does this have to do with anything yeah it's so that simon can become a vampire in later books oh okay because in the context of the first book it happens and then is never referenced again i guess in Mm -hmm. the movie they make a point of like showing that he's been bitten right yeah but yeah, in the book, it's just like, remember that time you were a rat? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. And I mean, one of the other issues is that this isn't really, ultimately, a standalone book. No. So this is the first in a trilogy. So in a lot of ways, it's not a standalone book, right? Because it is the first of a trilogy. It's also like some other texts that have been very, very popular in recent years. It has emerged out of Cassandra Clare's fan fiction for Harry Potter, right? Mm-hmm. So there's like a lot of levels on which it doesn't actually stand on its own no. as a narrative. And as someone who has come to it almost completely divorced of all of that knowledge, like I knew of Cassandra Clare because I am extremely online. Mm-hmm. And she's a force in and the Wyatt community. in the Wyatt community. And I, I knew of her, honestly, not in a positive sense. I knew of her from like bullying other YA writers and her negative activity in the community, which is part of the reason why 
I'm not not go so far to say I've ever like thought about boycotting her, but I've just been sort of like, Ugh, I just want to stay out of that whole mess. Mm-hmm. So that's all I knew of her. And so if you come to this book without any of the sort of underpinning fandom knowledge of where the story is rooted, and you come to it without expecting to engage with the rest of the series, it's a very confusing and messy novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like one of the things that I'm rapidly discovering as an education from this podcast is that we're not reading these texts by themselves. So I know that we're looking at them as books to film or TV shows or something like that. But it's very clear to me that there's a whole other capacity in which we can be looking at these books. And that is the way that different fandoms and online communities are being created around these books. And the way they shape, you know, how the books progress and in the way they shape how books are received, right? Like this book has sold millions and millions of copies as near as I can figure. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing, There's also, I do actually have two significant problems with it. But as far as mainstream teen fantasy goes, there's nothing about it that I think is terrible. But there's also nothing about it that I think is particularly special. <laughs> it's just kind of is. Yeah, I felt that exact same way when I was reading it. I don't think that I fully understand the love and affection that fans would have for this because to me it feels quite generic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i mean that not in a positive or a negative sense generic in the truest sense that it is a reflection of almost all of the predominant tropes of its genre like to me more than any other book we've looked at this is the most sort of explicitly genre text Mm-hmm. In that it's not doing a single interesting or challenging or troubling thing to a single one of the tropes of the genre. No. Let's just say that, spoiler for the end of this episode, it's the closest we've ever come to getting a bingo. Oh, is it really? Yeah. I mean, if you want to be a little bit discerning with some of the categories, oh, it's by far the most <laughs> notches <laughs> that we've ever had for a single text. That doesn't honestly surprise me. Without being a bookish snob about it, that's probably exactly why it's so popular, right? When books do something unexpected, that can be delightful, but it can also be frustrating if you have expectations of the genre, right? Mm -hmm. There's nothing in here to, to frustrate a reader. She's giving you exactly what you expect and exactly what a reader who reads a lot of urban fantasy is looking for. So before we go further, why don't we introduce the two other texts that we're talking about? So there's a 2013 film that is a Canadian-German co-production. I really, I don't want you to tell people that. (laughs) It just means it's where the money came from, because if you watch this movie, it looks British as hell. It does look British as hell. It also, as with so many poorly made fantasy films, it falls into that trap of normal people have American accents and everybody with superpowers is British. Mm-hmm. Yes, and for completely unexplained reasons. Because <laughs> this film is still set in New York, but it's populated entirely by superpowered British people <laughs> who apparently come from their own random country. So it's yeah. not even like superpowered people come from the UK. They just all happen to have English accents. Oh my god, I can't remember the name of their country. That's how this book did not stick with me. I think it's Idris, and I may only be able to remember oh, yeah, that because, because of Elba. Idris Elba. Yeah, I did the same thing. Okay, that is it. <laughs> okay, so we are talking about the Mortal Instruments semicolon City of Bones. Did I get that right? Is that a semicolon? No, it's a, a regular colon? colon. Damn it. The Mortal Instruments <laughs> colon City of Bones. Please leave in that grammar education. Punctuation education. 
who could who could remember? <laughs> Everything you've heard about monsters, about nightmares, legends whispered around campfires. All the stories are true. So this movie is populated almost entirely by two different casts. There's a whole swath of really talented adult actors like Lena Headey and Jonathan Rhys Myers and Aidan Turner and Kevin Duran and Jared Harris. And if you've watched movies, you're not going to know maybe who those people are. But when you see them, they're character actors. I mean, people know who Lena Headey is now because she's on Game of Thrones. But these actors are all good actors, and they are trapped in terrible YA adult roles. Which, in the year 2013, was a popular thing to do. It was like, fill your YA movie with mm -hmm. great adult actors, and not a lot of talented young actors. No, just find hot young people. Yes, the emphasis <laughs> in these films and the TV show yeah. is hot, 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 as well as matrixy leather outfits. Uh, I understand that the demons and the demon hunters have glamours that allow them not to be seen, but like if you're trying to blend into mundane society, do you need to dress in skin tight leather with your ass hanging out and your stomach hanging out? To me, it's like we're very serious hunters. We we go unnoticed. We're dressed bizarrely with these giant wigs and so much eye makeup all the dudes have like crazy like black eye makeup so you know for sure they're demon hunt it's just the oh so tropey mm -hmm. yeah it's a very odd and i find far more so in the film the yes. tv show looks a little bit more realistic it yes. opens up in a very sensational way but the movie is blowout central like everybody's yes. hair looks like they've been caught in a windstorm <laughs> yes. and there are model beautiful but under super heavy amounts of makeup and mm -hmm. then these just absolutely ridiculous leather concocted outfits it, uh, everything about it made me nuts i think at one point i i, I tweeted you last night and i was like will these children get out of their underwear and go to bed it is very late at night <laughs> Because one character is literally introduced wearing a blazer and boxers. Yep. And that's how you know that he's meant to be the sex pervert of the movie. <laughs> yep. 
I say that as the queer man talking about the queer character. Yep. Yeah. Okay. This so this is a mess. It's Re- a mess. Yeah. Read that issue. So this movie has as its young cast, Lily Collins, who apparently is a thing because she was in some terrible Snow White adaptation that we could one day do if we want to. Uh, Jamie Campbell Bauer, who he's famous for a terrible Camelot adaptation. Robert Sheehan, who amusingly enough, we literally just talked about last week. He was close in the Umbrella Academy. So I'm happy to see that he's still working because he's... <laughs> only talent coming through this young cast and then there's a canadian in the cast kevin zeggers who people may remember from the airbud franchise oh good lord and then nobody else important okay so that's the movie the movie is bad the movie was expensive the movie flopped spectacularly originally it was meant to have a sequel they had already announced a sequel before the first film had even come out that's how confident they were in this product And then the opening weekend happened and they were like, we're going to quietly retreat and not talk about this anymore. (laughs) So Sigourney Weaver, we know that you were on tap for the second film. We're just going to go ahead and let you go and make other stuff. To which I say, bless the Lord for that. Yeah, we didn't need Sigourney Weaver to be tainted by this. Also, by the way, do you know who Lily Collins' dad is? Phil Collins, right? Yep. I'll be in your heart. <laughs> oh my God, don't you dare leave that out of the editing. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, so what ended up happening was they were still confident enough, not in the product, but in Cassandra Clare and the fandom. They knew that they had something that they could still make money off of. So the same company, instead of making the sequel, took a couple years off and they suddenly come back and say, sequel, gone. TV show, we're going ahead with it. Right. Which is how we then get Shadow Hunters, the Mortal Instruments. You forgot the colon. (laughs) (laughs) Shadow Hunters, colon, the Mortal Instruments. Not long ago, I discovered the truth about the world. We're shadow hunters. We protect the human world from the demon world. Clearly, is there a war going on that I don't know about? A few days ago, all I had to worry about was getting into art school. You're part angel, Clary. This is who you are. Solar demons protect humans. You'll get it eventually. I'd do anything for you. You don't have to die. I'd rather not do that. I'm not interested in your supernatural fight club. Which is what makes you so interesting. I won't forget your sacrifice. I'm ready. So this is developed by Ed Decker, and it came out in January of 2016. It currently has three seasons on Freeform, which is formerly ABC Family. And this was ABC Family's attempt to diversify some of their content and begin going increasingly into more science fiction type shows. And this is not a bad adaptation. They do take a lot of liberties with the text in terms of stretching it out. Obviously, it's got a brand new cast. So we've got Catherine McNara, we've got Dominic Sherwood, Alberto Resende, Matthew Dardario, Emerald Tubia. And then I think the only person that people would actually know from this cast is 
Isaiah Mustafa, who people will recognize as the old Spice commercial guy, plays Luke. That's who he is. And then you wouldn't have met him because I don't think Magnus appears until a couple episodes. Oh, he is, right. Yes, he's randomly in the pandemonium scenes. And it's Mike Chang. Yes, it's Mike Chang from Glee, Harry Shum Jr. Yeah, apparently he has a real name, but he's Mike Chang from Glee. Mm -hmm. Or that like totally final little snippet scene of Crazy Rich Asians. I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) I mean, it's fine. It's very derivative of rom-coms. Right. Yeah. So the TV show, it just premiered last night. It's final half of its third season, and it will soon be wrapping things up, which is why we're doing this. But uh, yeah, so that's the introduction to the three texts. We're at 30 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) We're awesome at this. Okay, so I want to say that one thing that both adaptations attempt to do, and the TV show is even better and I think more organic at it than the film is attempting to diversify what is an aggressively white book. Mm-hmm. Yes, we've talked about this a couple times on the podcast and it seems like when we're hitting some of these newer texts, they're far more cognizant of the fact that you cannot release a YA property that only has white actors in it. You just can't. No, and the book is not just white it's like it's problematically white well yeah because the only character she introduces as being not white at all is magnus who she tells us is asian Mm -hmm. like she's so not interested in diversifying that world at all but even like i don't mean diversity for diversity's sake i know that that's like the buzz thing that people are all about but i just mean this book is supposed to be set in modern day new york city Mm-hmm. Why is every single person white? Well, no, not every single person. You're forgetting Raphael, the vampire. Oh, right. Yeah. I wa- In fairness, I was forgetting Raphael, the vampire, who one of our characters calls Chico. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is, this is, it's not racist at all. And unproblematically calls him Chico. Like, mm-hmm. like none of the other characters go away. Maybe you shouldn't call people. No, no, just like out there. And the guy corrects him, but he still says it. And like, uh, it's... To me, one of the things about this book that makes it so ugh to sit through 500 pages of is that it is so, as I think I said this off the top, but it's so not interested in challenging anything. Yeah. Like it's the pumpkin spice lattes of genre fiction. Oh my gosh, that is a perfect description. <laughs> and I say it's that as kind of bland, it's inoffensive. <laughs> it's comfort food YA in 500 page book form. Yeah, and you're not going to have to think about anything for 500 pages. Yeah, because really, okay, so at the center of all of this is Voldemort. I mean, sorry, Valentine. (laughs) Oh my God, though, Joe, I read something really disturbing. We're going to be doing Mortal Engines in the next little while, right? Mm Mm-hmm, two weeks. And apparently Yes, there's crossover. There's crossover. (laughs) No, it's just I think she names one of the characters after another character. Like, just tell me it's better. Is it better? It's different. Joe. It's more interesting. It tries a lot of more interesting things. We'll put it that way. All right. All right. (laughs) So Cassandra Clare got her start writing Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings fan fiction. And there's been Mm -hmm. a lot of online speculation that the book is actually based on the fan fiction that she wrote for Harry Potter that featured Draco Malfoy and Ginny falling in love. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So in this realm, people have speculated that Jace is... Draco. Draco, thank you. And Mm -hmm. Ginny is Clary. Mm -hmm. Which some people took a lot of problem with. And part of me was like, okay, well, there's a ton of people who have begun writing fan fiction. And then they pull it, they rework it, they publish it under a different form with different names. And that's how you get Twilight. It's not a new thing anymore. Like Twilight was the first and biggest thing to do it, but it's not... I mean, that part of it isn't news, but it is kind of weird to me. One of the things, (laughs) reading this feels like reading a book by someone who watched Star Wars and thought the most interesting plot line was Luke and Leia getting together. (laughs) Like this fascination she has with a particular kind of forbidden love around siblings. Yes. And apparently she did write an incest fiction piece at one point as well. Which, again, is actually not that uncommon. Like, if you dip your toe into slash fiction, it's, yeah. There's no shortage of that in slash fiction. There's no shortage of that in fandom. Especially, what's that? Supernatural. Oh, it's called Supernatural. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot in that one. That's the primary (laughs) mode by which fanfic for Supernatural exists. So it's not unheard of. I don't even think it's particularly troubling. It's just, to me not very interesting it's just kind of like ugh. i don't know her desire to keep talking about it i don't know i just i was like really we're gonna pull this string all the way to the end huh yeah and i think that's actually one of the areas that the film falls down hardest as well so in both the book and the film it's like 25 percent clary finding out about the shadow hunter world and learning about demons and downworlders and looking for this macguffin object called the mortal cup which is at the center of her parents conflict which snooze fest but mm-hmm. you know fully 75 percent of it seems to be about her sussing out Jace and determining whether or not they have a connection. They don't. Nope. And her dealing with Alec because Alec is secretly gay and he has feelings for Jace. And for some reason, demon hunters aren't allowed to be gay. Mm-hmm. For reasons. For reasons. I throw my hands up in the air. And of course, there's the love triangle aspect with Simon. Yes, so Simon is still in love with Clary, but then he's also hanging out with Izzy, who is Alex's sister, and, you know, it's just a big old hoopla of who could care. Yeah, well, that's... Like, I don't understand. Like, I understand why people get wrapped up in the romances. We've talked about romances a number of times on the Mm -hmm. podcast. None of these are interesting at all. (laughs) This just feels so slight to me. Like, I didn't get any romantic connection between any of them. And Clary is a weirdly written character, and she's a weirdly acted character in the film. Catherine McNara on the TV show does the best because she she actually plays her like a human being. Human being, yeah. So, okay, the gender politics of this book in general and the adaptations as a result trouble me. Okay. We're dealing with yet another not-that-kind-of-girl protagonist, right? Like, she only hangs out with boys for the most part. Mm -hmm. She's beautiful but completely oblivious to the fact that boys find her beautiful. Mm -hmm. She ends up at the center of a love triangle. The love triangle... Is not, I mean, it's more like a love rhombus, but if we think about Simon and Jace as the two potential suitors, Jace is just so stereotypically the quote bad boy, unquote, and Simon is so stereotypically the quote nice guy. Mm-hmm. 
end quote to the point where he's even like i'm the one who's always there for you sad sack it's so boring (laughs) she has chemistry with none of them but but on top of that as a female protagonist like cassandra clare gets a whole lot of credit because i guess apparently when she was shopping this around for a film adaptation it was recommended that she gender swap the protagonist Mm -hmm. which p.s also makes no sense at all no sense how would that anyway whatever yeah so she and she doesn't gender swap the protagonist and everybody's like wow what a hero mm-hmm. except that she stood up for the power of her convictions except wow except that like we've got a protagonist who is incapable of forming friendships with women all the other women in the text are antagonistic to her because she's so beautiful oh my gosh she's so beautiful she's such a threat to us because mm-hmm. of her beauty yes we've got a protagonist who um doesn't eat can we talk about that for a bit We get told over and over and over again, especially for the first like 200 pages of the book, how she doesn't eat. She Mm -hmm. regularly goes three or four days without eating. She's very stressed out. Well, but there's this weird uh, drawing together of eating and losing power somehow. Like she's she's demonstrating this sort of strength of will. Yeah, by not eating, it's like, wow, look at look at how dedicated she is. Like she's yeah. she's so driven to find her mother and to rescue Simon and to get the cup. Who could possibly have time to eat? Oh, she actually also refuses to go to sleep. She also refuses to go to sleep, yeah. Like there's a lot of Okay, I'm gonna get to my to the next piece in a second, but back to the food. There's this one scene where Dorothea, they're at Dorothea, she's like the magical neighbor. Mm-hmm. And they're at her house trying to get more information about where her mother might be. And Dorothea makes like a plate of cucumber sandwiches, which like caloric load of nine, I guess. And, and she also barf. <laughs> See, I like a cucumber sandwich, but I come from the Brits. So, you know, true. But she, she eats the plate of cucumber sandwiches and Dorothea makes this comment, but like, oh, it's good to see that you have an appetite. And mm-hmm. she then feels profound shame, thinks about Isabel's body and how beautiful it is. And then we never see her eat again for the entire book. Mm -hmm. fold into that the lack of sleep fold into that the fact that the way shadow hunters reign their power is through Mm self-harm like they cut runes into themselves to acquire powers which then leave scars this book to me is a whole nightmare around self-harming behaviors Mm -hmm. and i don't know if it's because i'm a mom now or if it's just because i was a teenage girl but i read this and it was just alarm bell after alarm bell after alarm bell to me in the way Clary and the other characters around her look after or fail to look after their bodies. Yep. Yeah. It's, <laughs> uh, and then you could even factor in, what's her face? Oh my gosh. The sister? Yeah. Isabel? Isabel. Thank you. I was like, why do I want to call it Leslie? <laughs> okay. So we're also told that it's hilarious how Isabel can't cook. Oh yeah. Yeah. Not that anybody else tries, incidentally. No, I mean, the other weird thing to me was Isabel's weapon is a whip. Yep. And the way that she dresses also then earmarks her as an uncomfortably sexualized dominatrixy kind yep. of character. Whereas all the boys get very weapon. phallic knives and swords and yep. maces and these kinds of things, right? Yep. It's gross. Yeah. The other thing that bothered me, and this is partially just because I was raised on strong female characters like Buffy and X-Men characters. We talked about this a little bit in the interview with Stephen Berezny. Like, I'm used to seeing women who can hold their own. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that Clary is a weakling in the way that we might see if we look at Twilight or something like that. 
She's not as bad as Discovery of Witches. What's her face from that? Right, yeah. But I guess one thing that really bothered me is that her entire arc over the course of the novel comes to a head when she discovers that Jace is her half-brother, that they've been kissing the whole time. Mm -hmm. So incest, check. (sighs) And she confronts her father, and her whole arc culminates not in doing any kind of action. Mm. It's just literally holding Jace back. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The climax of the novel to me was so boring. It's so boring. And it goes on for probably 70 pages. Yeah. I skimmed a lot of it. It's a lot of like, Jace, don't do that. No, Jace, he's not your dad. Jace, blah. Basically, the end of the book is her literal father, Valentine, and her half-brother slash love interest, Jace, Mm -hmm. and her dad figure, (laughs) Luke facing off against each other while she stands around that Mm -hmm. i mean that's the climax of the book she's supposed to be the protagonist she protags nothing Mm -hmm. in the end of the book at all and then the film kind of beefs that up a little bit Mm -hmm. but not really so in the film version she ends the battle by putting valentine through the portal destroying the portal in the process But she then she gets caught. She has to be pulled back out. But at least she is an agent of action there. And the book, it's just like, ugh. Yeah, she's literally standing around. I don't need my protagonists just standing around and particularly not my lady protagonists. I need them to be actors in their own lives or I'm just not interested. Mm -hmm. Well, it's because this climax in the book is not even about her. It's about Jace. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. Like he becomes the main character somewhere around page 400. Mm -hmm. And then you just have to sit out this end about this person who honestly I have not found any reason to care about. And all of a sudden, like he's the main character. And it's like, okay, but like the one thing that this book had going for it was the potential of an interesting coming-of-age story for Clary, Mm -hmm. and then Claire just abandons it. Yeah, the only thing that she really does over the course of the book and the movie is she persists. Like, she basically refuses to eat or sleep, Mm -hmm. and by extension, she's always like, okay, well, we got to go and do this other thing. And they're like, no, it's too dangerous, and you're stupid mundane. (laughs) And she's like, well... Too bad. We got to go and do it because we got to get the plot from point A to X, but also I'm going to go and do it. So she persists. Nevertheless, she persisted. So did anything about the movie work for you in that regard then? I mean, we, we talked about how she's a bit more active. She's a little bit more active and the cast is a little bit more diverse, but I don't think anybody in the movie is good any of the young actors are any good and i didn't suddenly start caring about them in the film version and i have to be completely honest and say that i fell asleep for a little bit in the middle of the movie and had to turn it off and watch the rest of it this morning Mm -hmm. so that is my glowing (laughs) recommendation for the film like i just found i was calling it city of bored last night because i was just so bored More so than in the novel, because at least in the novel, you can kind of skip ahead to something that might be interesting. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the movie, you're kind of trapped with these tropey, undeveloping blandos. Yeah. So this movie is written by a first-time screenwriter named Jessica Postigo. And she is making the classic mistake of adapting a very long book into a very long movie. Yes. And trying desperately to avoid offending anyone. Yes. 
So this movie really does try to pack in all 500 pages of the book, minus a couple of plot points. Like they kind of get from point A to C a little bit quicker because they don't go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, which was part of my struggle with the book. It was Mm -hmm. like, can we just please go somewhere and have something happen and not have to be like, and then we went back to the Institute and then we went back to my house (laughs) and then we went back to this place. It's so true. 80% of this book is just you on flying motorcycles or taking like the subway. I don't care. (laughs) I think at one point I actually threw the book down and the comment that I made was just put some stuff in your backpack so you don't have to go back. (laughs) Yeah, pack a cucumber sandwich and that little rune (laughs) stick and just go do something. So the movie does expedite a few of those things, but it then also makes the mistake of saying, hi, we think this could be a franchise because Cassandra Clare's novels have done so well. So we need to make sure that we've got a giant extended action sequence where Simon gets kidnapped by vampires so that we can show off the worst CGI effects you've ever seen. The CGI is so bad. I mean, I kept having to check to make sure that it was definitely a movie that came out in 2013 because the, the CGI is so bad. And it's amazing that the CGI in the freeform produced television show is significantly better. Yeah, and we're talking TV budget. And it's not like the TV show looks amazing. It looks okay. There's a couple of really shocking things. Oh yeah, no, it's not great. But this movie had a $60 million budget. I mean, we're not talking Star Wars level budgets. But for what it's delivering on, ooh, no. It's so bad. The werewolves look like butt they look terrible <laughs> they do it's true finding creative ways to swear on this podcast is tough <laughs> the werewolves look like butt uh the set dressing and the lighting should have been fired immediately because none of these interiors are convincing there's no. one shot where they go into the institute and there's a, like a 30 second slow pan up as the door locks shut and i was like you're not harry potter i don't care <laughs> the entire inside of the institute looked like cardboard to me like it was so poorly executed and the other thing is no differentiation in lighting from set to set to set so no. like you are in the basement of a church and it's lit in literally the exact same way as a Brooklyn loft, mm-hmm. which is lit exactly the same way as outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't normally notice that kind of stuff. If anybody is going to willingly s- suspend disbelief on that kind of stuff, it's me. Oh, it's And so even you. I was like, ooh. <laughs> Yeah, the entire climax outside of the Jace Clary Valentine thing involves the werewolves being attacked along with, I just want to call her Lizzie. (laughs) 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 Can't remember her name. Uh, Along with Isabel getting attacked by these giant flocks of birds. Oh my God, the birds are so bad. They look so bad. They like, they flicker almost. They're so unconvincing. So the birds are demons. They're different pieces of demons. So they come together to form a single demon, like five birds, one demon. You buy now. (laughs) 
But there's this one part where they're they're trapped in a room with no exits and the demons are pounding on the door. So Clary does a rune on her hand and then she's like, open the door. And then she freezes them. Then they all walk by them and then they start to reanimate and they wait until they reanimate oh so that yes. they can battle them and all of the werewolves die. <laughs> and I was like... Why didn't you kill them as you walk by when they were frozen? This movie, I hate this movie. I hate this movie so much, Brenna. <laughs> the way they walk around the frozen demons reminded me of like a bad spy movie where they're trying to get around those infrared like sensors in an art museum. Oh you yeah, know? yeah. And it's so yeah, bad. like oh don't oh don't touch it. Ooh, drop your shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> They're all holding swords. But the whole time Lily Collins also has her hand up, like, I'm still using this rune. Uh, uh, I'm still <laughs> using the power. And it's like, that's not doing anything anymore. <laughs> You've cast the one spell. <laughs> Put your arm down. You're fine. One of the reviews I read for this movie said that City of Bones is, this is Seattle Times, said City of Bones is so overwhelmed by CGI effects that it amounts to white noise for the eyes. Yes. It's so true. Not only because it'll put you to sleep, but it might also kill you. (laughs) It's just like, I... I was really shocked by how disappointed I was in the effects. Like, you had told me the movie was poor. But (laughs) I was anticipating to at least get, you know, some eye candy out of it. And since I'm not into teenagers in their underpants, I meant in the CGI kind of sense. Right, the spectacle. Normally these movies are spectacular, even if they're not good, right? Yeah. And this was just, I mean, tedious to watch, boring to kind of follow, no differentiation, as I already said, between sets, but then you add the CGI on top of it, and it's like, Mm -hmm. in some scenes, laughably bad. Yeah, and it just goes on. This movie is over two hours long. It's two hours and ten minutes, and I started it on Netflix. First of all, my Netflix was trying to protect me from it because I searched City of Bones, and it's like, no matches. And then I searched Mortal Instruments, and it's like, no matches. Just super like, weird because that's how I got to it. And then I put in, uh, oh, Shadowhunters, and then I had to go through to the TV show to get like the related titles to find the movie. Oh, so my weird. Netflix, my Netflix didn't want me to watch it. My Netflix was like, Brenna, no, we know you. We know you're going to hate this. Why don't you just go watch some Fosters? We have six seasons. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. And so then I finally clicked through the menu and it's like two hours and 10 minutes long. And right at that moment, Joe had tweeted me because I think we started it about the same time last night, mm-hmm. except that you're three hours in the future. And you were like, why is this two hours and 10 minutes? And I was like, you assigned this to us. Yeah. I would be truly surprised if there is a single fan of this movie. It has a 13% on Rotten Tomatoes. Which is atrociously bad. (laughs) Yeah, when you're dipping into near single-digit territory, (laughs) you have created a masterwork of absolute garbage. You know how Rotten Tomatoes will come up with like a tagline based on all the reviews? Mm -hmm. So there's for Mortal Instruments City of Bones is... Mortal Instruments City of Bones borrows ingredients from seemingly every fantasy franchise of the last 30 years, but can't figure out what to do with any of it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's a perfect summation. Yep. And I don't want to talk about it anymore, except to give it one credit. I got one chuckle out of this. Because the book and the film, I think, are actually meant to be very funny in certain places. I did not really get that. No. I found it to be a lot of characters 
that I don't care about bickering with one another. Yes. Particularly Jason Simon, which I did not care for in the slightest. No. The one laugh that I did get. So as I mentioned, the adult cast in this movie, fantastic. They're honestly all really good people. They're all uniformly terrible or completely misused. (laughs) So Dorothea, the neighbor, is played by an actress named CCH Pounder. And she has been on a ton of great TV, particularly Michael Chiklis's The Shield. She's amazing in it. So whenever she shows up, I'm like, yay. But whenever she shows up in a genre film, I'm like, oh, no. No, no. Because she makes terrible decisions when it comes to genre for some reason. I remember her from ER. I really liked her on ER. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So at one point, it is revealed that Dorothea is secretly an old-timey demon in disguise. And she was there to lure the cup out of Clary and her mom by acting in a nicely neighborly capacity. So she reveals herself to be this squiggly CGI demon that looks completely unconvincing. She beats the crap out of all the young characters. She leaves them stunned and unconscious around her (laughs) fortune-telling den. But then she goes to leave and the door has been broken in half. So she goes to exit and she shuts the top part of the door, but her entire body is still evident from like the neck down. And she kind of looks under the door and is like, huh, well, this isn't going to work. And then she just drags her piano over to cover the rest of the door and walks off. And I was like, okay, that's kind of funny. I like that. That bit was funny. And it was early enough in the film that I was like, oh, oh, okay, it's going to find its feet and figure out that it's actually like poking fun at all of these tropes that it, no. Mm -hmm, No. Like I really, that was a moment for me where I was very hopeful of what was to come next. And I was, as usual, staggeringly disappointed. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's just, hey, the guy that you've been macking on is secretly your half brother, but you should totally still ride off into the sunset on a motorcycle together because maybe you can hook up later. Aren't they fully siblings? Same father. Yeah, okay, yeah. So they are full, full on. Yeah. yeah, I think it's revealed in like the last book that Jace is maybe not actually Valentine's oh, for- son or something. Because I think they walk back so that they can have a happy ending at the end of the third book. But when I was doing the research on the second book, it was still fully, they're trying to fight their feelings. There's one point where she's trapped in like the Idris Elba world that all the Shadowhunter <laughs> people come from. <laughs> Oh, there's a better movie in Idris Elba. Idris Elba world. world? Um, anyway, sorry, I lost my head for a moment. She's told that she's imprisoned, and the only way for her to leave the city is to kiss the one that she desires the most. So she tries to kiss Simon, and it doesn't work. Oh, poor Simon. And then she kisses Chase, and she's allowed out. And they're like, oh no, how do we fight these incestual feelings for one another? <sighs> okay, so let's talk about the TV show. Oh, right. Because we have what? Five minutes? <laughs> Uh, We got a little bit, yeah. I liked it better. I've only watched the first episode, so I liked it better. I thought visually it's just a vastly superior product. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, because the other problem in the film version, I have to say, is I cannot tell any of the young men apart. Like, I understand that What's-His-Face is blonde, but other than him, I cannot tell any of the young men apart. And they all wear the same clothes and the same eye makeup, and I don't care to distinguish (laughs) between them. I mean, you could have just stopped it. I don't care. (laughs) I would have accepted it. (laughs) The TV show is better at distinguishing the individuals from each other. Mm -hmm. The sets are more convincing. The lighting is effective. The effects, like none of it is, none of it makes you go, well, I'm having a cinematic experience. Like it's still very obviously a TV show. Mm -hmm. But when you've literally just come off the movie, which is what I did and roll straight into the first episode of the TV show, it's like, oh, 
It feels like a breath of fresh air. Totally. Very much so. So I liked that. I thought the cast was actually all really well selected and better used. Like, I just think, I don't know enough about cinema to know if it's the director who failed on that film adaptation or what. Oh, I think it was a failing on nearly every level. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But in this... In the TV adaptation, those actors are being much more effectively used, and yeah. the result is something more compelling. Like, I'm not going to finish the series because it's, let's be real, it's not made for me. Mm-hmm. But I didn't find it painful to sit through the hour. Yeah. So this was made for freeform, which means that the episodes are a hot 42 to 44 minutes with commercial mm-hmm. breaks. Mm-hmm. So there's a pace and a rhythm because they're actually operating on an act structure. So each episode actually has a beginning, middle, and end. Like yes. they're dealing with a single conflict. They're not yes. saying like, hey, we're just trying to get to the end of the book and not address the fact that both the book and the film have a complete non-ending cop-out. Yep. So the TV show is actively plotting to say, okay, we know that we want to cover the first book in the first season, but they're doing a lot of other interesting B plots. Like Simon has his whole arc. He gets kidnapped by vampires at the end of the second episode. The entire third episode is almost entirely focused on getting him back. And that's where they introduce Raphael and the different vampires. And there's actually a female vampire to shake it up. Like she's actually the one in control and there's political infighting between them and they give these characters motivations they give them more to do they actually get to spend more time with them like there's an entire episode dedicated to alex coming out process and what it does with his parents who are characters in the tv show and his romance with magnus bain which is fairly progressive and forward thinking and Mm. i know the book caught a reasonable amount of flack because it was basically all about Alec being jealous of Magnus having multiple partners because he's thousands of years old and Magnus being like well deal with it if you can't handle it then that's your problem which is you know helpful whatever (laughs) but yeah like the tv show is obviously more diverse I mean Luke is played by a person of color Isabel is played by a person of color I can't remember if Matthew D'Addario is considered a person of color or not amusingly enough he actually auditioned for the same part in the movie so oh really seriously (laughs) so I've seen the entire first season and I hate watched it originally and then I had to go back and rewatch it because I was writing an academic article on it really yeah so I've published two academic articles one on Joss Whedon and the other one on this tv show But it's more about how the TV show has survived due to its fandom and how they use social media to keep the show alive. Right. Because it didn't have great ratings, but it had enough of a passionate fan base, particularly around the Alec and Magnus relationship because teen girls love them some gay boys. And (laughs) for that reason, they actually managed to get the show renewed for the third season and then it didn't unfortunately work for them to get a fourth season. So, Right. Yeah. I got nothing. Mortal Instruments, man. I had higher hopes for this, but I think I would probably go TV show, book, movie in terms of best to worst. I would absolutely agree with that. And I think that if you want to read the book, I think it's really worth reading some of the criticisms of Cassandra Clare that are online because there are people more erudite than us who have talked through some of the issues with diversity, representations of sexualities, Mm -hmm. uh, some plagiarism controversy around her work. And I just, I would encourage people to check 
those reflections out. Yes. Also. Yeah. Maybe we'll link to some in the show notes. Sure. Yeah, I can do that. Do you have YA bingo for the mortal instruments? Bingo! Not a good bingo. I mean, I feel like I'm saying this every week lately, but child soldiers? Yeah, that's definitely one of them. Dead parents? Yep. Jace's wah-wah father (laughs) storyline. I can only be a warrior, Brenna, because my dad died. I'm not good for anything else. I'm damaged. I'm a teenage boy in a YA property. I'm so damaged. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was my main one. Okay, so you've got child soldiers and dead parents. Yep. Oh, and um, did we end up putting... I See, I should look at the bingo card while I'm having this conversation with you. (laughs) But I also... And we haven't talked about this yet, but I do think that some of the problems with the protagonist, and it makes sense that it comes out of fan fiction if this is the case because there's a bit of that sort of Mary Sue, like the author placing herself Mm. in the protagonist role, which makes it difficult to be kind of critical about the choices you're making in representation of that protagonist's choices, I think. Yeah, it's not currently on there, but we could probably shift something around. There's a couple of blocks that we've only used one time, so. Right. Well, it's just a thought, but I think you said we've almost got a whole line, so you must have found more than I did. So I was a little generous in some of this. I'll be honest with that. So we've got Love Triangle for sure. Yes. Ugh, yes. We have... Even though it's boring and you don't care what happens to any of these people. Yes. We've got secondary queer subplot. Yes. We've got house porn, if you want to consider the fact that these children live in a giant friggin' manor that can house hundreds of people <laughs> that is completely empty and at their disposal. That's true. And somehow in Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, we're probably surrounded by these places, but because we're mundane, we just can't see see it. Right, of course. Uh, Yeah, and then the final one that I had was allusions to other YA. There were so many points where whenever they talked about Valentine and his circle, I was like, okay, so you're talking about Voldemort and the Death Eaters. Like, it's just so obvious. And he went into exile, but now he's back. He faked his death, but he's not actually dead. I was like, like, I can't not see it true and that was before i even learned about the fan fiction (laughs) and the plagiarism accusations and so on so oh geez all right so altogether, unfortunately they're not in the right configuration to give us a bingo line but we have six in total across five options so that is a staggering number for a single text although i guess it was a triple text yeah and if we wanted to, we could put in the O Canada because this was also filmed in Toronto. I really need us to not tell people that. <laughs> Don't worry. The movie bombed so hard. So it was a $60 million budget. It earned $31 million <gasps> oh, no. in North America. Oh, no. And it grossed 60 across the rest of the world for a total of $95 million, But they spent an additional $60 million advertising <gasps> it. Oh, no. Even I can do that math, Joe. Yeah. Typically, you need to earn three times your production budget. So they would have had to earn 180 before <laughs> any costs were recouped. And they made 95 so they basically half of break even. Yeah. Like Ouch. this was a colossal failure. And for an anticipated franchise starter, mm-hmm. going back to our discussion at the opening of last week's show on the Umbrella Academy when we were talking about the drop in YA sales, mm-hmm. I think you could directly correlate the failure of this movie as well as Stephanie Meyer's The Host as well mm-hmm. as Beautiful Creatures, which all came out within around a 12-month period. 
I think this is why we don't have big budgeted blockbuster films or franchises anymore. So you're saying it's because the movies got bad, not because publishing started publishing books by people of color? <laughs> Crazy, Joe. You mean I the know. industry might have done it to itself through sheer lack of being crappy? Yeah. No, three, not lack of being. Never mind. <sighs> I mean, we can always hope for more <laughs> maze runners. We'll see what happens. Mm. We'll see what happens. So... Yeah. So, before we go, where can people get a hold of you? I'm at Brenna C. Gray on the Twitters, and as I said off the top, our hashtag is hashtag HKHSpod. Please, Cassandra Clare fans, come and talk to me on Twitter. Explain to me what is compelling about this book, Mm -hmm. please. Or if it gets better, because when I read the second book description, it actually sounded even more convoluted and back and forthy and just... I don't know. Like, it doesn't really sound like there's a market improvement between book one and book two or something like that. So I don't know. No bueno. Uh, how about you, Joe? <laughs> I can be reached at B Stole My Remote. That's the letter B. And if you want to send us your treaties or your doctoral thesis on the mortal instruments, you can send us. Oh my us... God, or your fan fiction. If you have <gasps> send mortal us your fan fiction. fan fiction, please send it to us. Yes. Send me the Jason Alec fan fiction, please. Oh my God, if we actually got fan fiction in our inbox, we should do like a special episode about it. I would read it. Totally. No, I know. I would do it in a sultry voice, though. <laughs> nasally sultry imagine that people (laughs) could be good but you could send that to us at hkhspod at gmail.com we're shifting gears dramatically next week yes thank gosh where are we going (laughs) so we're gonna read the fantastic graphic autobiography persepolis by marjan satrapi so that's two volume graphic autobiography and a fantastic film adaptation so huge gear shift from Mm -hmm. this week definitely worth checking out yes all right so until then i'll see you on the page and i'll see you on the screen Bye bye